as I read. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. May God use his word to our hearts and minds this morning. I want to address the, the background and the significance of this passage before we look at the details, you might say. So a little different approach right now. Background and then a little of the significance and then some of the details, okay? I want to address the background because the Apostle Paul is speaking to slaves, and that can be troubling. Is the Apostle endorsing the enslavement of human beings? Well, here's the background. Slavery was a fact of life in the Roman Empire. It said that one out of three people in the Roman Empire were a slave. You could become a slave as a prisoner of war, or maybe because you sort of went bankrupt to pay off your debts. Some even voluntarily became slaves. Now, were there abuses of this system? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But a slave could also own property and earn their freedom. So this form of slavery in the first century was different from the brutal, racist, chattel slavery practiced in this country. They were quite different. And the apostle does not explicitly condemn the slavery of his day, but he doesn't condone it either. In fact, I would submit he undermines the institution in a few ways. He addresses in this passage, if you notice, slaves and masters with equality. He treats both as full members of the church there in the city of Colossae. In fact, this letter was probably sent along in the hands of a runaway slave named Onesimus, who had come to Christ. And Paul sends Onesimus back to his master Philemon to be reconciled. You can read about that in the book of Philemon. Paul says there to Philemon, accept Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. Receive back your slave as your brother. See what he's doing? He's undermining the whole institution with the work of Christ, the good news of Jesus. Now, I want to acknowledge there is not a one-to-one correspondence between first-century slavery and our work today. I I acknowledge that. But, But I submit to you, application can be made from this passage to our work. And the key to doing so, I think, is in this one sentence, at least the key is summed up in this one sentence, at the end of verse 24, where the apostle says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Or as a command, it might be better translated, serve the Lord Christ. That leads me to the significance of this passage. The significance. 
Some of you might be old enough to remember the band Van Halen. Van Halen had a clause in their performance contract, apparently, which stipulated that a bowl of M&Ms must be provided backstage with every single brown M&M removed. If the band found any brown M&Ms in the bowl backstage, they could cancel the contract and receive payment in full. You might say, what gives with the brown M&Ms? Well, it was actually a safety issue. In their concerts, they used nine tractor trailers worth of equipment, which meant that mistakes could be life-threatening, particularly if the stage couldn't handle all the equipment. So they had to make sure the concert promoter read the entire contract, every single stipulation. Thus, the stipulation about the brown M&Ms. If they went back and found brown M&Ms, they knew they were in trouble. Everything turned for them on that one line. I want to submit to you, everything turns in this passage and in your work life on this one line, this one sentence. You are serving the Lord Christ. In fact, what that line does is gives us really what we might call the doctrine of vocation. The doctrine of vocation. We think of vocation as what we get paid to do, but the idea is, is much fuller than that. The word comes from the Latin, a word vocare, which means to call. The idea of vocation is you have a calling. You have a calling from God. It's what the Apostle Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says the following. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Only let the person lead the life, notice, that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That's not the calling to salvation. That's a calling to something you do in your life. God assigns you that station. God calls you to that particular work or vocation. And to be sure, he gives us multiple callings. But here we're focused on our work. And we should see it as a calling, a calling from God. In other words, you want to see what you do tomorrow morning whether you work in the home, outside the home, or in the classroom. Whether you are a retiree or you're looking for work. You're doing some kind of work tomorrow. And you want to see that vertically. You want to view your work, your vocation, vertically as a calling from God. And that will transform your view of your work. That's really my main idea. I think that's the main idea of this passage. To see your work vertically. To view your work, your vocation vertically as something you do unto God Himself. And that would then transform your view of work. And I want to see with you three ways. Three ways viewing your work vertically transforms your work. Here's the first. First, work's motive then becomes reverence for Christ. When you view your work vertically, work's motive is then reverence for Jesus. See, in this letter, the apostle has been extolling the, the absolute supremacy of Jesus over all things. And now he's talking about what that looks like in everyday life. So he addresses husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters, beginning in verse 22. He writes, 
bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So the duty here is clear, obedience. But God gets at their motive for that. It is not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but notice, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So don't do your tasks as, as eye service, just because you're being watched, just because the boss is around. Don't, don't do it as a people pleaser to curry human favor, work out of sincerity of heart. Then notice why he says, fearing the Lord, or with reverence, with, with the sense of awe and, and reverence for Jesus. And there is a Latin phrase that I think captures this sense. It is the phrase coram Deo. Coram Deo, which just means before the face of God. This is how you should see your work according to this passage. It's coram Deo. It's done before the face of God Himself with that sense of awe and reverence for Him. That's a, that's a powerful vertical motive for your work. I once heard a lecture about the famous composer Bach. I don't know anything about music. But the lecture talked about how Bach composed his music with, with intricate details no one else would notice. Seven notes here and then seven notes here. And the exact number of measures here and the exact same thing over here. There was perfect symmetry in this one piece that you would never notice by just listening to it. Only scholars who tear these things apart caught it later on. So you should ask, why would Bach bother to take all of this effort in his music for things no one would actually notice? Well, he was doing it coram Deo. He was doing it before the face of God with, with awe and, and reverence for Him. And, and we know that because he would write, as you may know, three letters on the page. S-D-G, standing for another Latin phrase, soli Deo Gloria, or to God alone be the glory. Friend, that's being vertically motivated with reverence, reverence for Christ. And we need that constantly, don't we? We talked last week how we live in a Genesis 3 world where mankind has been plunged into sin and rebellion. And that means that work will now be hard. There'll be a sense of futility and frustration to it. So inevitably, we're going to find ourselves thinking, whether you work in the home, outside the home, or in the classroom, inevitably, you're going to find yourself thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> you might be thinking about your work right now and thinking that very thought. It might be that you work for the military or the government, and you see maybe a lot of uh, in inefficiency. That's what I'm trying to say. And that inefficiency is just discouraging for you. Maybe you work for a large corporation and you just feel like this tiny cog in this huge machine. And you wonder, what difference am I making? 
Or you're thinking as a student, why do I have to take this class? Why do I have to read this textbook? Why do I have to go to this lecture? I don't want to do this anymore. Or you're thinking about the challenges at home with the children, with the unending pile of laundry, and you want to literally and figuratively throw in the towel. Just be done with it. Look, we can all relate to that, but here's how this verse can help you. Lift the hood in those times and do a little motive check. Do a motive check. Am I possibly doing this by way of eye service? I, I kind of want to be seen. Am I doing it maybe as a, as a people pleaser, just curry favor? Am I doing it just to get ahead, to make more money? Or just because it's my duty and I've got to endure? Where your motive might be off, remind yourself I do this ultimately, coram Deo. Serving many people, as we talked about last week, as a mask of God. But ultimately, I do this before His face. I do it for His glory. And then, you know what you'll do at the end of the day? You will, maybe not literally write it, but you will somehow think it, S-D-G. Lord, this day... Soli Deo Gloria. It's to your glory alone. That's one way. Seeing your work vertically transforms your work. You work then with a motive of reverence for Christ. Here's a second way from this passage. Second way. Works hope then. Works hope is then the reward of Christ. Works hope, you might say. Sure, certain hope is the reward of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. The apostle goes on, whatever you do, work heartily, or we might say, work at it with all your heart. Work at it with all your heart. Work, work heartily. Let that just land on you for a moment. Work heartily. I like what author Dorothy Sayers wrote. She once wrote how the church tends to exhort someone like the carpenter. She says, the church tells the carpenter, don't get drunk and come to, work on, uh, come to church rather on Sundays. But she said the church should be saying to the carpenter, your first responsibility as a Christian is to make good tables. She calls it good work done well. Work heartily as part of your discipleship, as part of following Christ. And then notice... Why? As for the Lord. So it's vertical here again, right? As for the Lord, not for men, do it unto Jesus. And then God elaborates on this vertical reason in the next verse. Verse 24. Knowing, knowing something. You must know something. That from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now recall, this is written first to slaves. Slaves had typically no inheritance rights. Only the sons and daughters would inherit the estate. And slaves were typically very underpaid, so you worked for a pittance. 
serving the sons and daughters who would inherit the estate. But God says to them, work heartily, work heartily, I'll tell you why. I've got a far greater inheritance for you. What is that? Well, inheritance in the Old Testament is sort of background here. And inheritance in the Old Testament particularly was about the promised land for Israel. That earthly promised land was a picture, a metaphor, you might say almost, for the heavenly inheritance of Jesus Christ, of believers in Jesus Christ. That that earthly promised land promised something greater, a heavenly inheritance for you and me. In Colossians chapter 1, This same letter, Colossians 1, Paul prays he is giving thanks to God the Father who has, he says, quote, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Did you catch that? Jesus qualifies you for this heavenly inheritance. You just have to be a son or daughter in Christ, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection. And you inherit what God has for you. That means this verse is saying, back in verse 24, this verse is saying, our heavenly inheritance is to impact our earthly work. Your heavenly inheritance, if you are a Christian, if you have trust in his life, death, and resurrection, you have a heavenly inheritance to come, and that heavenly inheritance is to shape how you think about and do whatever it is you do tomorrow morning. At the beginning of this same chapter, chapter 3 in Colossians, the Apostle says, Set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Set your minds on heavenly things, not on earthly things. I read that and I think, I guess he means I've got to be disconnected from real life now. Can you relate to me in that? That's sort of how I tend to wrongly think about that verse. I guess he means some zen-like state where I'm always meditating on heaven and never caring about what happens on earth. It's all going to burn. So what is why my work matter? It's all going to be really transformed, but do you think that way? The apostle here says, look, you're forgetting something. You're serving the Lord Christ. It's vertical. That means he has a reward for you. That means your heavenly inheritance should impact your earthly work. Whatever you do tomorrow morning, heaven means to go with you. I've shared this before. I, I have bifocal contact lenses. I am 50 years old, and I cannot read things up close without reading glasses. So what, what I went to a while back was actually a, a, was so cool to me. I can wear uh, two different strengths of lens. My left eye has a weaker lens. So I can read what's on my page, even though it is 14-point type. I can still read it without reading glasses. And my right eye has a stronger lens. I can see you. It's really cool. It's wonderful. I have both these lenses now, and that's kind of how we're called to do our work. 
using two lenses. One with the eye on your calling, your vocation, the task to which he has assigned you. He says, work heartily there. Make good tables while you have your other eye on the reward. One eye on your earthly work. One eye on your heavenly inheritance. Maybe for you, maybe for you, the earthly reward isn't what it could be or maybe should be. Maybe there's a, a promotion that you haven't gotten, that you should have gotten, or a raise you're waiting for, you've never received, or you're just, you're just really underpaid. Or you work at home and you've made financial sacrifices that you might work at home, or you fill in the blank. Whatever your situation work-wise, there are going to be sacrifices, and let's be honest, there will often be disappointment with the com uh, compensation. If you're not disappointed with your compensation, visit the offering box again like Joshua mentioned and <laughs> we can help you with that. No, kidding. In those times, it's so vital for you to use both lenses. To allow your heavenly hope to make an earthly difference for you. In times like tomorrow, if you commute and you sit on the 805, it's so vital in those times that you have one eye on heaven while one eye is on the road. That the reward is before you. And you have that hope. When you think about your work around the house, for the kids, and you're exhausted, it's so vital then you have one eye on heaven, one eye on the reward. You're serving the Lord Christ and one eye on your work so that you do it with hope. Or as you go to the classroom or maybe in some volunteer service you do or you fill in the blank, friend. You get the point. God intends for your heavenly inheritance to give you joy, to give you purpose, to give you anticipation because you're serving the Lord Christ and He will reward you. That's the second way. Seeing your work vertically transforms your work. You do it with reverence for Christ. You do it for the reward of Christ. And thirdly, there's a third way. Thirdly, work's comfort. Work's comfort is then the justice and I would add, mercy of Christ. When you see your work vertically, the, the comfort you will have becomes the, the justice of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and His mercy. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, again, still to the slaves, more than likely here, he writes, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This verse might be here since probably Onesimus, the runaway slave, is carrying the letter. And so Paul wants to make sure no one misunderstands. Being a Christian doesn't mean you can just run away and shirk your responsibilities. There's an accountability still. 
But then the slaves are given a wonderful comfort as their masters are also addressed in chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 1 says, Masters, let me get your attention. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing something, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So masters, you better think vertically as well, right? Masters are now cautioned. Treat them rightly. Treat your saves, slaves appropriately because you have a master in heaven and that means you are his slave. And we need this comfort, don't we? Because in your workplace, you're going to experience some injustice. You did get passed over for that raise you deserved. You did get passed over for that promotion you did deserve. You get maybe mistreated by fellow employees who think that because you're a Christian, they can take advantage of you. Or other students get the credit for your hard work. They, they cheat off your test or they take all the credit for the group projects. Or maybe you're working at home and, and you're just getting sinned against by your little charges. And the temptation to think is, it's not worth it. There's no justice here. I give up. We need this vertical comfort. The comfort of knowing the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. The one who rules the universe with perfect justice. But I think as we also take into account the bigger context there's mercy here as well. There's mercy. There's a, there's a parallel between Colossians 3, verse 25, and Philemon, verse 18. Same language is echoed. In Colossians 3, 25, wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrongs he has done. In Philemon 18, it says, basically Paul says, Philemon, if Onesimus has done anything wrong, if he's done some wrongs, charge that to me. It's a picture of applying the mercy of Jesus Christ at the same time. Because Jesus says, of all who believe, Father, charge their wrongs to me. Jesus says, Father, you sent me to rescue them. And receive what they deserve. So, so charge tab trainers many, many, many wrongs. Charge them to me as I hang on a cross. And he did that for you. If you believe. So yes, the wrongdoer will be charged. But I love, I love Paul's twist on that. For these letters were probably carried the same time, delivered the same time. As Philemon reads the Apostle's words, um, Onesimus, uh, sorry, Philemon, charge Onesimus' wrongs to me. For that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. And don't we need that comfort, friends? We are comforted by God's justice while, I hope, reflecting God's mercy as well. There's a story I've heard Tim Keller tell. Perhaps you've heard it. Pastor Tim Keller 
tells a story of serving in New York City and seeing a lady in the back who would, who would come, sit in the back, and leave right away after the service. Come, leave, come, leave. Finally, one Sunday, he caught her and said, how are you, etc." She said, I'm fine, you know, I just kind of come and go. I really don't know if I believe what you guys believe, but I'm intrigued. So Tim Keller said, okay, well, how did you hear about this church? And she told him this story. She was hired by a TV network in New York City. And soon after she was hired, she made a big mistake, a, a potentially career-ending kind of mistake. She was sure she would get the axe. But her boss, who had a lot of credibility with his superiors, he went to his superiors and said, look, it's my fault. I didn't train her well enough. I didn't prep her well enough. If you're, mad, if you're going to be mad at someone, be mad at me. Don't fire her. And he took a hit for that. His credibility took a hit. But she kept her job. So she went in to try to thank him. And he said, no, 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 no don't thank me. Don't thank me. Well, she wasn't satisfied with his, don't, don't even think about it. She said to him, I've had bosses take credit for things that I had done. And that happened all the time. I've never had a boss take the blame for something I did. That's against human nature. You took the blame, she said. You took the blame for me. I've never seen that before. She kept pressing him on this. Finally, the guy said to her, okay, I'm going to say this once, and you make me say it. I'm a Christian. And my whole life is based on a man who took the blame for me. And that shapes the way in which I do everything in my life. And she said, where do you go to church? I love that story because there's something of both justice and mercy. The wrongdoer will receive what he or she has done. But don't forget, don't ever forget, for all who have trusted Christ, your wrongs will charge to him. I hope you're seeing how viewing your work vertically as unto the Lord, as a vocation, as a calling from God himself, that transforms your work. You work then with reverence for Christ. You work for the reward of Christ. And you get to work reflecting the comfort of his justice and his mercy. So let us celebrate his mercy as we close. The band can join me and those preparing the Lord's Supper can prepare to do so. We want to celebrate the fact that we are, yes, serving the Lord Christ, but more importantly, He has served us. <laughs> he gave His life as a ransom for all who believe. And on His perfect work, we rely right now. So we're going to celebrate what he has accomplished for us. Now, two brief